<clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode four of our Applications of Forensic Science for Human Identification season, Just Science sat down with Catherine Pope, a research public health analyst at RTI International, Dr. Bruce Anderson, a forensic anthropologist, with the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner, and Joe Mullins, an instructor at the New York Academy of Art, to discuss human identification using forensic anthropology and facial approximations. From skeletal remains found in the woods to mass casualty events, forensic anthropologists use their knowledge and expertise of biological profile estimation and skeletal trauma analysis to help establish identities for unknown individuals. Forensic artists who are trained in facial approximations use skulls and other identifying information to recreate victim spaces. Listen along as Catherine, Dr. Anderson, and Joe discuss how their disciplines interact, coordination with various entities to resolve cases, and how to get in touch with local forensic anthropologists and forensic artists. This episode is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Jacqueline McKay. Hello and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Jacqueline McKay, with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Today we will be discussing forensic anthropology and facial reconstruction. Here to guide us in our discussion is Catherine Pope, Dr. Bruce Anderson, and Joe Mullins. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Kat, would you mind providing our listeners with an overview of what forensic anthropology is? Anthropology overall is the study of man, which can include anything from our hominid ancestors to our language to the artifacts we leave behind. So in particular, forensic anthropologists specialize in physical anthropology by focusing on human osteology or the human skeletal system. And that can be from microscopic cells to the largest bony elements in our body. And practitioners are trained to recognize normal human variation, disease, pathology, trauma, and also taphonomic changes, which are how our bodies change after we die. So you asked what a forensic anthropologist is. Forensic anthropologists use their experience in all of that and their knowledge and the context of the scene to help resolve unidentified human remains cases by estimating identifiable features such as age, sex, population affinity, height, and other things that might help identify people. So would forensic anthropologists only get involved in cases where the remains found are bones? Not necessarily. I mean, on TV, we usually see forensic anthropologists going out to the woods and helping with skeletal remains. But more often than not, what we're doing is helping out in the lab and during autopsy. So forensic pathologists, the folks that are doing the autopsies, are trained in working with muscle, tissue, organs, and they're there to establish cause and manner of death. And they do that by looking at disease processes and trauma, and taking photographs and make, taking measurements, things like that. So an anthropologist can really get involved when there are disease processes found on bone or trauma to bone and help them identify those features and describe them. Thank you for that clarification. 
So would forensic anthropologists be involved in large disaster events and mass fatality events? Yeah, for sure. Um, We definitely participate in large-scale fatalities. Some things that you may not necessarily consider a crisis, like our missing and unidentified persons cases around the country, I consider a mass fatality. It's kind of a silent mass disaster crisis. But we can assist in establishing minimum number of individuals that are deceased because we have the ability to you know, tell exactly who is where and when. And I think Bruce can definitely talk a little bit more about this uh, mass casualty event we're experiencing in the United States with our unidentified person's caseload. Kat, you worked for the Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Teams, also known as DMORT. Can you talk a little bit more about how they operate and how forensic anthropologists are involved in their response? The Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Team, DMORT, is a group of individuals, funeral directors, forensic anthropologists, medical legal death investigators, uh, radiologists, forensic odontologists, you know, anybody that's comfortable and familiar with working on unidentified human remains to help establish positive scientific identification, they would be called out in these mass fatality events. So this could be a train accident or an aircraft accident that has caused um, more than, you know, like five individuals dying in one event. And this could also be hurricanes. And it's generally cases that are here in the United States. And it's whenever a medical examiner kind of gets overwhelmed that a lot of medical examiner and coroner offices are set up to handle their normal workflow, you know, the normal natural deaths without primary care doctors or uh, drug overdoses, suicides, homicides, that normal standard is what they handle daily. And if there's an influx, they will call DMORT for assistance in those events. But what we're worried about is establishing positive scientific identification. I really like that you hit on in disaster fatality that it's about cooperation and all these entities are trying to work together in order to help establish identities. So switching gears a little bit, Bruce, you're a forensic anthropologist that works for a medical examiner's office. Can you explain how you would get involved with a case when remains are found? Typically, uh, those of us that work in a medical examiner coroner's office, <clears throat> we get a request from the forensic pathologist after the autopsy is completed. And that could be a traditional autopsy on fleshed remains, or that could be a single sun-bleached bone that was found out in the desert. But uh, almost always, it's the forensic pathologist who needs another question or a couple of questions addressed that can't be uh, easily addressed from a standard autopsy. And that can be everything from a single bone identification to a personal identification of an individual, to a trauma analysis, to uh, how long the person's been dead. So there's a variety of uh, determinations a forensic anthropologist can make that is based on training that most forensic pathologists uh, never receive. Would there ever be a case where you might respond to a crime scene in order to help properly collect the bones that are found? Or are you mostly coming in after the autopsy has already been performed? We assist law enforcement at, I don't know if it's a crime scene per se, but uh, at the burial site. We've been training in our jurisdiction here uh, in Southern Arizona, we've been training law enforcement and continue to train law enforcement on 
proper archaeological techniques to remove fleshed remains uh, from clandestine graves. And then when those fleshed remains become partially skeletal or totally skeletal, uh, we try to impress upon them during this training that they might want to get a forensic anthropologist involved. So depending on the agency here in Southern Arizona, uh, some will call us for a body. Some will only call us when the bones are loose in a grave. But we uh, assist regularly several times a year on clandestine graves or uh, surface scatter, or, or a body's been dumped ostensibly out in the wilderness, and then it's taken weeks or months to find now the uh, partial skeletal remains. Thank you for that distinction between crime scenes and the actual place where the remains are found, because as we know, they're not necessarily always the same. And I know that training that you are providing law enforcement is greatly appreciated. I know Kat already mentioned that anthropologists can help determine age and sex. But are there any other insights that a forensic anthropologist can glean uh, from the bones in order to help add to a death investigation or help to identify an individual? Well, increasingly, especially with cell phone technology with cameras built into cell phone, uh, we're asked to determine whether a single bone found out in the desert, out in the wilderness. And uh, a lot of times uh, the finder, the discoverer can tell. Uh, sometimes they can't. They know that they can always call us, text us, send us an email with a photograph, and we can make a determination typically from a photograph or two. So right off the bat, a forensic anthropologist, much more than a forensic pathologist, are able to make that determination from a single bone, especially a bone that's been weathered and maybe been gnawed on by, uh, by animals. And then we go down, if it's a whole skeleton or a whole body, you know, we, we go down the, the list of uh, sex, biological sex, age within 5, 10, 15 years is usually doable from the skeleton. A lot of times ancestry is uh, important. A stature within three or four inches, if we can measure a long bone, we can typically get at the mean stature. Here in Arizona, we don't have a forensic odontologist on staff, so we actually examine the dentition as well. So if we have a missing persons report with a description of the teeth, then we'll do a full dental description on the postmortem side and then compare those descriptions with uh, any missing persons report that contains a dental description. So everything from is it human to is it non-human to uh, uh, has the child been abused in the past? Is a fresh break in the skeletal system? Is that consistent with uh, events that might have took the person's life? Uh, or is it more maybe more consistent with events that have to do with animal scavenging? For some of our listeners that are interested in possibly pursuing a career in forensic anthropology, what kind of background would you suggest that they have? Well, you need to be become expert in the human skeleton. And typically that's, that means study anthropology and study physical anthropology or, or biological anthropology with an emphasis on the human skeleton. Not just at the bachelor's degree level. You need to go to graduate school and get a graduate uh, degree, and you need to keep practicing on whole skeletons and partial skeletons, skeletons that have been uh, left out in the in the elements for a, a long time. And you need to know more about the human skeleton than the, the, the pathologists that are going to ask you to assist. 
And if you can demonstrate that, then you probably you can probably find a job. After that, you need to know how to apply skeletal uh, analysis to the medical legal world. There's really at least two different ways to write a, a skeletal report. One traditional one that we used to write for archaeologists with an archaeologist in mind, and, or maybe an academic journal. Maybe we're trying to publish something. So we write uh, reports and descriptions that are flowery and uh, and maybe uh, full of jargon. But in the world of medical legal death investigation, that's not what the pathologists want. That's not what the police want. If uh, That's not what the courts want. They want a clear, concise description of what you did and what your findings are. To get back to the initial question, how do you how do you become a forensic anthropologist? In my opinion, first you learn as much as you can about the human skeleton, and then you learn how to apply that knowledge to report writing and verbal communication with pathologists, the courts, and sometimes with the families of the victims. I think that was so interesting, Bruce, because in my experience, um, gaining the trust of the forensic pathologist, the medical examiner or coroner that you're working for is critical. There are not a lot of jobs for forensic anthropologists, full-time forensic anthropologists in the world. And so many of us pursued that career using the dual role, and we became death investigators first. And then we were able to show our medical examiners what we could do for them. And all of these things that Bruce described were like icing on the cake. You know, I can handle the typical run-of-the-mill stuff that happens in a medical examiner, but I can also do a trauma report for you. And the doctors really appreciated that. You know, being able to apply yourself above and beyond the normal scope of duty is a way to use that experience and education in a medical legal setting. Bruce, one more question for you. If investigators do not have a forensic anthropologist assigned to their medical legal death investigation office in their jurisdiction, how would you recommend they get in touch with one? Well, there's likely a college or university nearby, maybe a junior college that has an anthropologist. So they probably know somebody. But increasingly, the better way to go is to uh, uh, try to retain a board-certified forensic anthropologist. So my advice would be to go to our website, uh, the website of the American Board of Forensic Anthropology. That website is T-H-E-A-B-F-A, theabfa.org. And you'll, you'll find somebody in your neck of the woods that can help you. Additionally, NamUs, the NamUs program used to offer anthropology services. With the new organization of NamUs, uh, I, I think probably uh, there'll also be a, an anthropology service. Uh, if it hasn't been announced yet, it will, it will be shortly. But you're going to find a qualified uh, and probably experienced uh, forensic anthropologist to help you. Perfect. Thank you for that. We'll make sure links to those resources will be on our website. Okay, switching gears a bit to forensic art and facial reconstruction, Kat brought up the mass disaster of unidentified remains throughout the United States. So, Joe, can you walk us through your work as a forensic artist and how you can use skulls to recreate the faces of decedents and hopefully help get these individuals identified? I'm always excited to explain the process of uh, you know, what a, exactly a role the forensic artist plays and assisting you know, law enforcement and medical examiner's offices, investigators, everybody across across the board. I think just a misconception on the process as a, as a whole and as a profession. So what Bruce and uh, Katz, well, everything that they do is they feel like they've done all the, the hard work 
for me. I just come in and based on information provided by them, my only concern is what the, I want a fully intact skull. So the cranium and the mandible is the parts that I need to do with the facial approximation process and get that victim identified. As a forensic artist, I'm not exactly on the front lines. Um, this is the cases used to come to us when everything else has been exhausted. All the investigative tools have not hit any you know, significant fine. So it's it's one of those things that's it's necessary tool that's proven useful. So when the skull comes to us, Kat and Bruce have done their assessment to give me the information. So I need a, an outline drawn basically for what this victim look like in life. So looking at the skull, they're able to tell remarkable details of what this person looked like in life. Come to the age range, uh, the ancestry, male or female, the condition of the bones and everything about this skull is the foundation that our faces are built on. So we're able to go through the process and put a face back on these skeletal remains and hopes to get them identified. Now, this conception, as we're doing these images, we're never, we're never going to come up with a, you know, exact likeness or portrait of what these victims looked like in life. It's kind of based on majority rules as far as what the anthropologists are supplying, the information they're giving us, and we're applying that to these skulls. Now, each skull just as unique as a face, and there's it would be impossible to come up with a portrait of exact likeness, I guess, of what these people look like in life. But we found that we don't have to come up with an exact likeness with these images as uh, the case information goes out on our missingkids.com site, name us, any and all you know, social media, any outlets possible. Because the only way these images that we create work is that the right person sees it. So we want as many eyes possible on this. And when they see it, it's not necessarily like, hey, I know it's like spark erection. I know exactly who that is. It's typically a response like, hey, that sort of looks like my cousin. I haven't seen him in six years. I think that could be him. Basically, I've done my job successfully if it generates a phone call and says, hey, I think I know who that is. So, Joe, you mentioned that you obviously need a fully intact skull and mandible, and you also receive information from the anthropologist. Can you maybe describe a little bit about what that information actually entails and what specific information you need in order to create the reconstruction of the face? The bare essentials, I guess, that, that I need really depends on the on the case. Sometimes there's there's fragmented skulls that you know, like we scatter remains, or there's a case that we only find you know a cranium and with no mandible because we're scavenged and they can't find all the other bones. But the information that provided to us is, you know, the age range, male or female, and ancestry. So that's could be, you know, black, white, or Asian, or admixture of any any of the three, the ancestry, you know, components. And those those ingredients are really the three main that I I can move forward with. The more information that I'm provided, the the better. There's clothing found with the skeletal remains, or hair is found with the skeletal remains, or all those added details, because if it's a dry skeleton, unless there's extreme situations, we, we have no idea about stature, for example. We have no idea if somebody was 150 pounds or 300 pounds. And as a forensic artist, I have a very limited artistic license. The faces that a forensic artist create can only come from the foundation and the skull that you're, the information you're given. You have to work within those parameters painted very strictly by the forensic anthropologist that has given you those guidelines to work within. You start going one way or the other off the rails, that's using artistic license, and that's not going to help get that victim identified. 
Joe, as you've said, basic anatomy practically dictates how the muscles lay over the bones in the face. But for features like the nose and the ears that are built from cartilage, is there a lot of wiggle room in their approximation? And what techniques do you use to try to help rebuild those features? Now, there's, there are variations with the, you know, the soft tissue. And as I mentioned, it's, it's kind of a majority rules where forensic anthropology is applied to putting these faces back on, especially in the realm of, you mentioned, you know, noses and ears. So from the nose, for example, you get information on the projection of the nose, you know, the width of the nose. You can see uh, kind of where the nostrils, the top of the nostrils start. So you, get, you do get some information as far as ears. Very limited information on ears. You get basic, you know, height, angle, just some information where they have, you know, attached or detached earlobes. But ears, for example, since you mentioned that, are not crucial for doing a, a facial approximation. And when I, you know, the classes and courses I teach as we're doing this, you're, you have to assume that this victim has ears. So you have to represent them with the limited information we have from the skull and the ears just shouldn't be a focal point. So when you see a facial approximation that we've created from a skeletal remains, the first thing that somebody says is, oh, look at the ears on that. That means I've done something wrong. <laughs> that should not be the case. It should focus on the, you know, on the face and what we know. So in regards to sparking the recognition and getting the reconstruction out to the right person, what are some ways that the renderings are distributed in order to try to make sure as many people as possible can see these renderings. Well, we live in a wonderful time with, you know, social media is a, seems to be a huge venue for us for investigative purposes to get these images out to as many eyes as possible. Now you want a case from uh, Kat and Bruce over the years. I was one of Bruce's case. You want to focus the area where the remains were found, but sometimes just because the body was remains were found in Arizona, that doesn't mean that person, the victim is from Arizona. So that in mind, you want the world population to see it. So last I checked, I think there was like 7.8 billion people on the planet. It'd be great if every, everybody saw it. Because as I've, I can't stress enough, that these images, they don't work unless the right person sees it. It's a collaborative effort. It's a wonderful world where art and science work together. Too. You don't get that in many other disciplines. We've come a long way, haven't we, Joe, from the 70s when sometimes the artist would, would work with an anthropologist, sometimes not. Uh, the technique was called facial reproduction, which was a misnomer because <laughs> uh, the, what it's called today, and this is only maybe 10 years old, uh, I think you all decided facial approximation would be a better uh, a better description of what you guys are doing. But uh, I can think of where a facial approximation was extremely beneficial. A former colleague of mine here in, in Tucson, uh, Dr. Angela Soler, who works in the Manhattan office of the uh, chief medical examiner, uh, was featured in an AP story about a, a woman uh, who went missing in New York City, I think about 30 years ago. And the family saw a facial approximation. And the family called uh, Angela and her cold case forensic science team in, in Manhattan and started exchange information and turned out uh, that this particular instance wasn't going to be the missing woman, but the family member gave enough information to the anthropologist, Dr. Soler, <laughs> to where she remembered we have another unidentified woman from this same, same time period. And lo and behold, by the time they got the DNA done, they now have an identification. And it was a facial approximation that was realistic looking enough 
to, to have a family member or a friend contact the authorities and give more information. So uh, I'm a big believer in it because, uh, especially when you only have a skeleton, there's not a whole lot we can show the family or the public when we have a skeleton. But if Joe and people like Joe can put a face on it, uh, then we're going to get more people interested. And there's, a, there's an image we can show. And it could be uh, like this recent case in New York City. It could lead to an identification, uh, even though the face facial approximation uh, uh, didn't really fit what the missing person looked like. So kudos, Joe. Just this morning when I got here, a, a supervisor shared with me, there was a case that I'd done that was a direct result from the investigative tool looking at the scene, the facial approximation that we had done from a skull before and then reinvestigating a cold case and remembering, I guess he was, the investigator was taken with the image he'd seen and he remembered it, seeing it went back and turned out to be a match. So it was a 30, 39 year old case that was now, that family now has the answer. It was the daughter that was looking for a mother now has those answers to what happened as a direct result of the facial approximation and all the work that the anthropologist, the investigator, you know, the collaborative effort that goes into this. It just justifies for me that I think I got the coolest job in the world that I helped lend to answer those questions so that family has been frozen in uncertainty for 39 years. Thank you both so much for those case examples. I I think it's so important to not only describe how the science works and what all goes into the process, but also show positive case results of this actually working and helping people and giving people their names back. So, Joe, in your facial approximations, how do you know when you're finished? I've so I've been doing this for 23 years, and that is a question that has has popped up repeatedly. And I came up with a, uh, a sound bites type of response that when I'm working, particularly working with clay, you got your, your hand very, you know, hands on you know, type of process. You can't help but get, I guess, emotionally attached to the, the case that you're working on and you're filling in the blanks or trying to come up with answers to what, what happened to this person, who they were, what they were doing, those types of things. But it comes a point when you're you just like day one, when you start, it's, it's a, it's a skull. And as you slowly start to build it up, it's not a skull anymore. It, it's a person. So I say, I stop when I see somebody staring back at me, the class that I teach, uh, that's where collaboration with both Kat and Bruce with the class I teach up in New York, where I give the students, art students, an opportunity to work on actual cases by day three, usually Wednesday, as the students are involved with the face is coming hundred percent. Everybody says, I know I understand exactly what you were talking about. So that is that is exactly what's happening. That it's it's not a skull anymore, it's a person. They, they get emotionally attached to the work and I can't help but have that emotional response to this this type of work. And I guess that's what drives us to that's why we love what we do is we're I guess we feel like we're making a difference and answering those questions. Joe, when your students are doing the sculptures to make the facial approximation, are they actually working with the real skull? No, uh, the, that was one of the big hurdles to get over when I first came up with the idea with uh, Dr. Brad Adams up at the New York City Medical Examiner's Office. Uh, that may have been the first thing out of uh, Brad's you know, mouth was absolutely not. I'm not giving you 15 skulls to, you know, to, to turn loose with a bunch of you know, artists. So you know, fast forward with technology, now we can do you know, scans of the skulls. So all the students are working with 3D prints of the actual skulls. So the actual skulls stay stay with the medical examiner or investigator or wherever they're, wherever they're at. 
Let, let me just say too, uh, our office, the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner, greatly values our long-term relationship with NECMEC. Uh, founded, I believe, in around about 1980, uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And just about a year ago, a year and a half ago, uh, they offered to do a facial approximation on a young homicide victim, a teenage girl who we didn't know who she was. We now know through uh, this new tool of, uh, of investigative genetic genealogy uh, who she is. But NECMEC produced a, a very uh, nice image, and I, I took the skull of this teenage girl over to their imaging department, and then they put the, the CT uh, data on a, on a disc. We got the disc back. The, the skull never left my eyesight. We brought her back here to our office, sent NECMEC the, uh, uh, the CT data, and then they reconstructed a, uh, a skull and a uh, Put that very believable face on that on that skull. So, uh, technology has certainly uh, helped us. Joe, if someone wanted to get involved with forensic art and possibly become a forensic artist, how would you recommend they become involved in the field? It is a tough uh, tough job to get. Uh, there's because there's not a lot of us out there that do the facial approximations uh, as a full time job. We have four full-time artists here at the National Center for Missing Exploited Children, you know, Forensic Services Unit, where we are really the, the envy of the forensic art world because that's that's what we do all day, every day is you know, forensic arts, uh, whether it be age progression of a long-term missing child, fugitive updates, age progression of adults, you know, morgue photos, um, and all the, the facial approximations from Skeletor are made. So it's, it's, it's what we do all day, every day. Most uh, larger law enforcement agencies have, you know, composite artists, but necessarily not a forensic artist. So if you want to do this, from my perspective, after 23 years, and it behooves you to be a fine artist first. You can specialize in composite sketches. You can specialize in facial approximation. You can specialize in a few different disciplines in the forensic arts field. But so get a degree in fine arts. So like painting, drawing, sculpting. That's where my background came from, a degree in fine art and graphic design. So that included learning Adobe Photoshop, for example. Thank you everyone for your insight. Before we close, is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners or any closing remarks you'd like to leave them with? I guess if there are people listening out there that have a loved one missing, that they haven't seen them, please go to your local police department and report them missing. Kat, Bruce, and Joe, it has truly been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your knowledge with all of us. Cheers. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you. Mine too. I appreciate the opportunity. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the forensics field, visit ForensicCOE.org. I'm Jacqueline McKay, and this has been another episode of Just Science. This episode concludes our 2022 Applications of Forensic Science for Human Identification season. Tune in for the next season of Just Science, which will cover various topics on human trafficking. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.